dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell Billboy come get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Hey everybody, welcome back to a new episode, the 50th episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. How are you this afternoon, Meryl McNally? I'm fine. Is it really our 50th episode? It is our 50th episode. What? I know. Groundbreaking. You know, I was sort of feeling it today, even though I didn't know it. (laughs) And what an auspicious movie to do our 50th episode on. Yeah, this is a big one. It is. Yeah. How are you? I'm good because it's a Friday. Uh-huh. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I uh, I told you that one of the things I wanted to do right off the bat was apologize for a weird slip of the tongue that I made in a previous episode, just because I've been editing these uh, in the last couple of days. In our episode on A Cry in the Dark, I got all up on my soapbox and I was talking about, uh, you know, the Lindy Chamberlain case kind of being the Australian equivalent of the OJ Simpson thing, you know? And I went on this whole thing about how America needs to apologize to Marsha Clark, which I still stand by, except I didn't say Marsha Clark. I said Marsha Cross. You did? I did. (laughs) And I didn't notice. Did I not notice? Nobody noticed. I mean, I ha- I've been waiting to get like an email from somebody being like, for real? You want me to apologize to push across? <laughs> oh, that's magic. <laughs> so, Marsha Cross is an actress from Desperate Housewives <laughs> and a lot of other things. Marsha Clark <laughs> was the district attorney in the O.J. Simpson case. She is the one I think we owe an apology to because everybody just made it about her hair and you know, a bunch of other sexist yeah. bullshit. And anyway, we don't really owe an apology to Marsha Cross. For a second, I thought you were going to say that you said America owes an apology to O.J. Simpson. <laughs> and I was like, first of all, I do not remember you saying that. And I would have said something and we would have had to cut that out because that's not true. <laughs> no, America does not owe an apology to O.J. nor Marsha Cross, just Marsha Clark. (laughs) Anyway, I'm not sure if anybody would even notice that, but it was just, it couldn't have come at a worse moment because I was like so into my little tirade. You know, I was just all up on my soapbox. I was feeling good and, you know, I just couldn't have screwed it up worse. But anyway, so this is the last episode of our uh, group of six 80s movies so when we complete this episode we will have completed all of Meryl's movies from the 1980s congratulations my friend congratulations. you as well yeah we're knocking them out so uh before we even dive into Sophie's Choice and all of the fun that's going to come from a conversation on this movie uh what else have you been watching since last we talked what have I been I'm still on my great British baking show pick um, I finally got to the most current season you mentioned in our last recording, and I have to agree with you. I'm not a big fan of the new host no. dynamic duo. They are like up in the baker's business and 
and really being obnoxious this season. So yeah, but I'm enjoying that. What else have I watched? Still watching The Undoing every Sunday night. Oh, I finally, I was a big fan of The Crown for the first two seasons. And I mm-hmm. never did watch the third season, which is the new cast with Olivia Coleman and Tobias Menzies and Helena Bonham Carter. And um, the fourth season just came out. And I was, I'm, I won't lie, I'm looking forward to getting into the Diana years. And so I, I've been watching the third season to catch up. Nice. Although I gotta say, it feels, a, I love the show. And it feels a little icky. We're getting a little too close to present day. And, you know, obviously I know the queen is still alive, but when you're doing a show about the queen in the 50s, it feels a lot different than doing a show about the queen in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's starting to feel a little. Ooh, maybe this is. <laughs> but it's still, you know, it's fun. It's a nice soapboxy. Nice. I just started The Crown. Actually, I mean, I had watched maybe half of the first season, but I had never really given it a go. And I earlier this week, I'm kind of alternating. It's a weird mix of shows because I'm I'm mixing that. And as we've mentioned, one of the episodes that we'll do reasonably soon our next tribute episode is going to be on Jessica Lange and uh, I feel like I've seen various seasons of American Horror Story but I wanted to like go through all of it and uh, so I'm kind of binging those two shows which they could not be more different. I bet I bet The Crown is like a nice antidote to American Horror Story because if you binge American Horror Story you start to go to some weird places it's very intense. 100%. 100%. Yes. There are days when I'm like, okay, you know what? I've seen three of these in a row and I cannot watch a fourth. Yeah, no way. The second so, season, Asylum, is still my favorite. That's what I'm in right now. I'm not very far with either show. Love it. It's yeah, so- that's that's where I'm in right now. James Cromwell is pretty terrifying in that. It, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we'll talk about we'll talk about all the seasons of American Horror Story when we get to Jessica Lange's um, episode. But The Crown is also kind of different than I thought. I mean, there's uh, it's a little bit more it's a little bit less PBSy than I remembered it. You know, like they're not they it's very much a Netflix show and not a PBS show, which is kind of where I had it in my mind. Totally, it's not a masterpiece classic, and this is somebody who's a major fan of masterpiece. Um, no, it, it 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 keeps a much better pace and is much more juicy. Yeah. 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 And Claire and, Foy is so good in the first two seasons. Oh, mm-hmm. she's so good. Yeah. And I'm finding it interesting too. I'm glad because I think the first time that I like watched the first half of this first season and then gave up, I was all in on John Lithgow as uh, Winston Churchill, but I never really kind of dove in on who any of the other, I'm kind of enjoying the history of it now and actually looking up to see who these people are. Vanessa Kirby, who now is a big deal and, you know, a lot of people think is in line to maybe get an Oscar this year, is Princess Margaret. And, you know, I'm sure I didn't even know who she was when I watched it the first time, you know, like it's a it's a brand new show in some ways. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's so good. I've been tracking her for a while. I feel like she was on she was on an episode. I want to say she was in the hours or not the hours, the hour. Singular. It was, um, I could be making that up, but the hour was with Romola Gary and Dominic West and Ben Wishaw. It was like a news casting. It was, it was definitely a PBS, like news casting in the 50s. Uh, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it was good. I'll have to check and see if that's what I remember her from. But she was in one of, she, she was, yeah. Anyway, I'm rambling now. That's okay. <laughs> but that's um, the creepy. Woo-hoo. The, yeah, the other two things that I wanted to mention quick before, because they both have possible awards uh, show stuff, probably in the supporting categories. Um, I actually watched these a little while ago, uh, several weeks ago now. I meant to talk about them in our last episode with Erin, but we kind of, uh, I, I don't think I even said anything during the segment, which was fine, but um, I, it's been a while since I watched either. So my memory is not particularly strong, but I watched the new Borat Oh, yeah. What did you think about that? I will never watch that. Have you seen the first one? No. And I never know. I have such an aversion to that level of embarrassment for people that I can't, I just can't go there. I am sort of with you. It is one of those things where uh, the first one, when the first one came out, nobody really knew at first what to do with this movie, you know, when it came out. And I was on, I was in a national tour with uh, a bilingual musical of all things, where we would travel the country and do this show. And we were on the road for six months, going to different places every day. And uh, one night we went to see that movie. Nobody had really heard anything about it yet. We were very insulated. You know, it was like the seven actors driving around in this van from state to state and venue to venue. And we hadn't heard much about this show or this movie. And, uh, it kind of made me sick to my stomach because everybody's reaction to it was how funny it was. And I just remember feeling like really as, as kind of melodramatic as it sounds like ashamed of my country in a way that there was like this sort of ignorance, this sort of proud ignorance, this very, um, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe it. And I don't mean to put anybody else lower than me or anything, but it was just this glorification of idiocy. And um, I wasn't sure that I was gonna, I do think there's less of that in the second, but I'm still just a little bit, un, not uncomfortable, but it's not really my, he, he just really goes far. Sasha Baron Cohen really takes it to extreme places. And sometimes it works and sometimes it's really, like sometimes it's really funny. And then sometimes it, again, it just brings out that same feeling of like, yeah you relate to that yeah I have a really hard time like I could never watch punked Mm -hmm. um I I, it's not just embarrassment I have a hard time with the kind of humor that's designed to make other people suffer and then we're supposed to laugh at it and I you know when when they listen I'm I'm not advocating one way or another for the people he essentially pranked but the level of deep humiliation I know I would feel if somebody had done that to me and I didn't find out until the movie was released or it would just be so mortifying. Right. I don't care what the other person has done. I just like, no, no. Yeah. (laughs) Which has happened a couple of times in this, in this film, there was, there were stories about, there was one woman and I won't give it away, but there was one woman who for the first time he kind of broke character. They didn't show this in the film, but he afterwards kind of explained what they were actually doing because he felt kind of guiltily enough uh, about it. And she was so genuine and so sweet, this woman, that he felt he had to tell her what he had been doing. Um, And then there is this other woman who I don't think did know what was happening. And she, again, was a very genuinely sweet woman who had wonderful intentions. And she got really taken advantage of by this movie. She's a big part of the movie and got paid very little money. And in fact, people were kind of outraged about that and put up a, I think it was a GoFundMe. Well, yeah. I saw raised, her too. Yeah. They raised a lot of money for her, which is great because she was the one 
she was what you hope you would be if you're in this situation where like she was very ethical, very uh, like what she was doing, what she should have been doing instead of what probably they were hoping she would do, which was something outrageous. And, uh, you know, so she, she showed herself to be a really genuinely good person for lack of a better term. And, you know, so anyway, there's been a little bit of that, but so I'm not sure what to make of it. I only really watched it at all because there's been, um, a push for the, the young actress who plays his daughter. I don't remember her name that she might get some accolades in the supporting actress category, which would be interesting. I suppose I would have a hard time seeing the movie go to the Oscars, but who knows? Yeah, that would be really interesting, especially because so much of it is unscripted. Right. Yeah. Right. And then lastly, I'll keep it short, but uh, keeping with the Sasha Baron Cohen uh, theme, I did watch The Trial of the Chicago 7 on Netflix. Isn't it good? I really enjoyed it. That's great. Yeah, I thought it was so well done. And I, um, y- you know, I, I have a few times voiced my irritation with Aaron Sorkin on this show, and I really thought he did a great job with it. and it's funny because this i guess they're all going in supporting category which makes sense because there isn't like a true lead of this movie it's very ensemble and uh they're also good i mean like the the argument that's being made right now is like the entire supporting actor category could pretty easily be filled with just actors from this movie in a way oh yeah oh yeah it is that good it's so well done you know, really, Aaron Sorkin's just so good at a courtroom drama. Yeah. He does them very well. Yeah, I was really impressed. I actually, um, I've watched parts of it twice, um, just because the dialogue is so quick-witted and there's so much packed in there. Um, yeah, I highly recommend it. That's really, it's a really good one. I've been waiting for this one for a long time because this was, had been, originally was going to be directed by Steven Spielberg and I was excited about it then. Wow. Uh, and yeah and I think it was always going to be written by Sorkin if I remember correctly or maybe Tony Kushner was involved at one point I don't remember but um it was Spielberg's for a long time and I mean he was one of those things where there were headlines about him this was going to be his next movie and then he kind of backed off for one reason or another and Sorkin swooped it up and I think Sorkin did a great job with it it's great he'll get some he'll get a directing nomination I assume and he's projected to and Supporting actor, probably two or three of them. Mark Rylance, I think, is in line. Uh, you know, a couple of the guys. I would love to see Frank Langella get one. Yeah. Uh, I love him in this he movie. So good as that judge. Yeah. I just, listen, I've been in front of judges that seriously nothing nearly as bad as that. But judges that just make these outlandish calls and have no control, they just captured that so, so well. You really at the mercy of the court. And it's, um, yeah, in that way, it was a little bit stressful to watch. I was like, these yeah. are all turning. <laughs> yeah, but I've just, uh, one of my very favorite performances, I mean, it made me cry and I'm not really a crier at movies. It was so beautiful. It was Frank Langella as Richard Nixon in Frost Nixon. So good. He's unbelievable. And I can't remember, I know he was nominated that year. I think that might've been the year that uh, Capote won Philip Seymour Hoffman. I might be wrong on that, but it was another year where like we knew who was going to win long before the Oscars actually were on. And I just remember being thinking, man, this movie should be getting so much more attention in his performance. Just, it's one of my very favorite. I think he's so good. And it's, I, I just hope he, you know, gets some more accolades and I don't know. I agree. 
Well, moving on, we have uh, just a little bit of mural news since last we spoke, which is that there was a new trailer finally and release date for Let Them All Talk. And it looks so good. Like it looks intriguing. It could go either way. It could be a shit show. I doubt it will be. It's Soderbergh and Meryl Streep and Candace Bergen and Diane Meese. Like, I'm not sure you can go wrong with this yeah. combo of people. Um, and the trailer is so entertaining. And you know what? I think it, from what I can tell from the trailer, it's an entirely different performance from Meryl than I've ever seen, I think. Say more. How so? Um, there's there's something she's she in developing the character, she's developed a different um vocal, like different vocal attribute. Mm. There's mm-hmm. something very vocally different about this character than others I've seen her do. And um, she seemed less familiar to me in this trailer than she has in other films, even when she's, you know, playing a character. Yeah, I'm really excited. The two kind of other bits of information that came out about it that I don't think, I, I assumed given it was a Soderbergh movie, that neither of these were really a surprise, I guess I'll put it that way, that the whole thing was filmed A, in two weeks. The entire thing was filmed in two weeks. And B, uh, that they basically improvised this movie. They had a rough outline, but they improvised this movie, which again is not unheard of. That's certainly been done with other movies, but you know, we get to see Meryl Streep's improv skills. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm very excited. I also have to say Candace Burke, Everybody who's listening, if you have Instagram, go follow Candace Bergen. She will make you laugh every day. This woman is hilarious. She is a gift to the world. And I cannot wait to see her improv either because I bet she's magnificent. She is great. And she's a good follow. I think you got me on to following her a while back. Yeah. She's good. Yeah. She's so good. I- I, those three, I mean, she and Diane Weist were just in uh, Falling in Love, which we did recently, but you know, uh, they, it seems like a really good pairing, the three of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be great. I'm so excited. And the other thing that's kind of interesting as we've been talking about is I think that one is released on the 10th and the prom is on the 11th. Yeah. We're getting back to back Meryl folks, back to back Meryl. Two Meryl movies in two days. That's kind of crazy. Crazy. I think that's right. It might be the 11th and 12th, but I thought it was the 10th and the No, 11th. I think it's the 10th and the 11th. I think you're right. Yeah. So the, our plan right now is those will be our next episodes uh, to do. Our next two episodes will be on those. I don't think we're going to do anything else before then. We're, we just have released six episodes in six days. So, you know, we're going to wait and <laughs> we're going to do those two episodes, obviously, as soon as we can after those movies are released. We can't wait. I'm really excited for both of these movies. Me too. So that'll be fun. But for now, let's dive in, shall we, with Meryl's probably most iconic role in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Let's get her done. We've been dreading this one because not to speak to the quality of the film, it's a brilliant film, but it's it's a doozy to watch. It's, It's it's a pretty tough watch. So we've been dreading it. And so you know what? I think I think my dread was a little misplaced. This is my second time watching this film. Probably my last. It was not as torturous as I had made it in my mind. Yeah. I mean, there are, we'll get into it, but I mean, there are scenes, I think it's partially to demonstrate like the volatile nature of Kevin Klein's character, 
there, you know, in order to make that effective, you have to show him, yeah, be an asshole, but you also have to see him be charming and so much fun. And so there are a few scenes where they're singing and dancing and enjoying each other and, and Peter McNichol too, where like, it's just bright. Like that scene of them sitting on a roof and the scene of them dancing around in those clothes before they go to Coney Island. And like, there are scenes in here where it's very vibrant and very light. Of course, none of that comes after, you know, like an hour and a half in, there's definitely a switch that happens in this movie halfway through. And it is just dark, very dark after that. But, and there are certainly moments in the first half that are very dark too. When you see Kevin Klein be abusive and awful, that's certainly no fun. Um, we'll get into it. Let's start with the plot synopsis for anyone who, ha- I don't know why anybody would listen to our podcast on Meryl Streep who has not seen Sophie's Choice, right. but assume. But if you haven't, you know, we're, we're here to usher you in. That's right. <laughs> okay, so this film is from the point of view of a very young 20-something writer from the South um, who goes by the nickname Stingo, and he moves to Brooklyn to write his, his novel, his, his epic novel that he's been wanting to write since he was young. And he moves into a house in Brooklyn, into a room in a house in Brooklyn where this couple lives upstairs. It's Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein. And Meryl Streep plays Sophie. She's she's a Polish immigrant. You find out she has been in um, Auschwitz during World War II and survived it and has come to America after the fact. And um, she is living with Kevin Klein, who's an American. You find out he's a biologist, but it turns out he is in fact not a biologist. He's diagnosed different. And it's sort of a coming, it's a coming of age story for Stingo, a sad one. Um, He goes to New York very naive and develops a very close friendship with this couple and sort of watches their volatile ups and downs and finds out about Sophie's past with her family. being killed in World War II and her experience in Auschwitz, and then also finding out more about Kevin Klein and that, um, you know, he suffers mental illness and won't give away the end. I, I don't think it's necessary to give away the end for those who haven't seen it. For those of you who have, you know how it goes. And it's very sad. <laughs> yeah, although I, we probably will talk about it. So I guess, you know, if you, do, if you don't want it to be spoiled. Don't listen maybe. further. Yeah. If you don't want it to be spoiled. Yeah. So you kind of gave, I usually ask what your experience is. When did you see this movie for the first time? Do you remember? I've known about it forever because my mom would talk about it. And she'd be like, oh, it's so torturous. She has to choose. So the big scene in this film that everybody knows and remembers it happens at the very end of the film when she reveals to Stingo the one thing she's never revealed to anyone. And that's when, when she arrived at Auschwitz with her two small children. Uh, one of the Nazi sol- soldiers made her choose to to made her choose between her children, pick one child to stay with you, and the other one's going to um, the gas chambers, going to be exterminated. And she couldn't do it in the moment. She couldn't do it, and so they started to pull both of her children away. And in the last moment, she chooses one over the other. And, um, you know, in addition to the horrors of being in Auschwitz, it's really this moment that ruins her. Um, She's never going to recover from it, obviously, and she'll carry it always. 
And um, I, so my mom had told me about that scene. So I knew that. So I, I hesitated watching Sophie's Choice for a long time. I feel like I saw Sophie's Choice. I purposely sat down to watch it. I, I want to say college age or older. It's been in my adulthood that I saw it for the first time. And I, I want to say I was already out of college. I want to say I watched it maybe in law school, which is a terrible choice. <laughs> I don't know. When was the first time you saw it? I saw it in high school. Um, I, I don't know why. I have a really bad memory. I've, I'm sure I've mentioned that on this podcast, but I remember this. So when I was really getting into Meryl initially, when I was in high school, um, I would get her films at the library and, you know, like the VHS or the DVD and bring them back and watch them. And I remember renting one. I remember renting this from the library and bringing it home. And my mom saying, oh, what did you get? And then I showed her and she goes, oh, my God, not that one. Please, not that one. Like she didn't want to watch it again. I'm sure she had seen it. And um, I just remember that reaction. I remember, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this, too. But one of the horrible things about this, I mean, it's such a sadistic act. I like I it's uh, it's gut wrenching. It's unbelievable. It's like the cruelty of, of humans is just beyond description sometimes. And I'm sure I won't be able to be articulate about it. But one of the other things about this that is regrettable, and it's, it again shares a similarity between A Cry in the Dark, is that Sophie's Choice has become something of a punchline. And if you actually think about what it is, that she's making a choice. I don't think people would make that joke if people would really stop and think about what it is that Sophie actually had to choose. And um, I'm not saying that that joke shouldn't exist, but it's, you know, it's hard right after you watch the movie. I watched the movie today and so it's fresh. And having that be there, it's just not sitting right with me right now. I I guess I'm saying that's a joke I'm gonna work hard to never make again. And uh, it's hard because it's just so like what what she went through, it it just goes beyond the ability to comprehend. Uh, You're right. She would, it's impossible to ever bounce back from something like that. Literally impossible. Yeah. And I think it's good that we talk about the scene from the get go and kind of get get it it out of the way. It's really interesting to watch it the second time because I had forgotten the, the nuances and the details of that scene. And I think what makes it even more gut-wrenching is that it looks like he, you know, he had started to engage with her. And she was so terrified. She really wasn't answering his questions. And he started to walk away. And in this moment of thinking that she could possibly save herself and her two children, she speaks up and tells him she's Polish. And that's when he comes back and and tells her she's got to make a choice between her two children. And so there's this, there's this like realization that if you just kept your mouth shut, you know, and that's probably not true either. I mean, you're at Auschwitz, they were probably going to die no matter what, um, but to carry that guilt around with her. And then also to realize that they were already taking both of her children. She had her hand still on her son. And that's, you can tell, that's what makes her instinctually say, just take my daughter because they already had her in their hands. Yeah. But it's like, she she, um, utters a silent scream 
And I have to tell you that I, I kind of distanced myself emotionally from the whole film. I was watching it sort of very objectively and doing other things while I was watching to keep myself emotionally distanced because I knew what was coming. And um, my sister happened to walk into the room right at that final scene when she's sort of choosing, the, when she's choosing between her two kids and my sister sat down and I'm watching the scene happen and I'm okay, I'm okay. And then Meryl Streep utters that silent scream and I lost it. Like it wasn't even a slow burn. I went from like zero to 160 yeah. seconds. I yeah. was like weeping with her. It was so powerful. I was like, oh my goodness. One of the things that uh, I, on the DVD of this film, there is a documentary that's actually a decent length. I don't know if you watched it. It's an hour long documentary. Um, that's, it's on there here. I have read about it. I don't have the DVD, so I don't have the special feature. Okay. But I, I, I do know about the round table and them talking about filming that scene. Yeah. And she, first of all, uh, ref I, I, I guess refused to do it more than once. She, she did it that one time. And she said that, you know, she read it. She read the script, uh, you know, read that scene when she first got the script and then purposely would not read that page again until the day of and uh, re refused to do it more than once. And the thing that I thought was really interesting, uh, because I don't know, I guess I'm a little bit jaded in some ways. And I would under normal circumstances not believe this at all if an actor said it, but I 100% do believe it to be true with Meryl is she said, you know, during that scene, obviously with her silent scream, the child is actually screaming, her, the, the girl is screaming and there's a lot of people making noise. And uh, she said that she genuinely thought she was screaming when she did that, that she thought she was screaming as loud as she could and didn't realize till afterwards that like no sound had come out, that it was that raw, that it was just nothing came out, but that she believed she had screamed at the top of her lungs. And again, I think normally when somebody says that, my instinct is like, you're full of shit. But I 100% believe Meryl in this case. I do too. You know what? It's, it's, and this is why it won her an Oscar. And this is why it's so iconic. Because it's one of those rare moments where there's just no acting happening. Yeah. It's so real. And it guts you. It's really, yeah. it's really quite awful to watch. And I, I, am, I will honestly say, I recommend this movie to anyone who hasn't seen it. I will never watch it again. Yeah, I can, I can understand. There's, I mean, we, this is one, obviously it's a very, very big moment in this movie, but there are other very difficult to watch segments in this movie too. Yeah. And again, we don't want to, I don't know, this movie has, it's more, the first parts of it really are vibrant though. That's the thing is like there, it's, I think the, the color palette of pink and that like, you know, bright red are so prevalent in the beginning that it, that's really effective. And that's not, the, the house is that like pink color and the walls are all pink. And I think that's really effective in this movie as this counter, this very subtle counter programming kind of thing. And I don't usually notice things like that at all. But I, yeah, it, so anyway, uh, what else should we talk about with this movie? Should we talk about Kevin Klein? Uh, yeah, let's talk about how this is a tour de force performance from Kevin Klein, and he didn't even get an Oscar nod. Let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's his first movie, although technically he had uh, he had filmed the uh, what is the Pirates, Pirates of Yeah, first, but I guess that 
uh, afterwards. Very theatrical performance because he comes from the world of theater, so does Meryl. I don't know Peter McNichol's backstory. I do want to talk about him as well. But Kevin Klein, especially at the very beginning of this movie, like you, you are introduced to those two characters in the throes of a very dramatic argument. And he puts down Stingo, like he's so just nasty and vile. But so I wasn't sure from that first scene, but it really works for him, I think that character. I think I think what he captures and I think what this film captures too is how people who have experienced deep, deep pain can sometimes be the most vibrant, charismatic, um, in the moment people that you will meet, I think because they understand the value of now. Right. Um, and this film captures that in a, in a way that I don't think I've ever seen on film quite the same way. Um, and, he, and he captures that brilliantly. Because the, this movie, you know, it comes from, it's, you know, it's made 1982. It's of the family of movies that could easily go into the melodrama category, but it's, they walk that line because the story is so big and the issues they're dealing with are so big. It would be easy for them to go into melodrama and they really do manage to always rein it in to where it comes back from that, which I think is really beautifully done. It's a testament to the writing and the acting and the directing. Yeah. And insane chemistry, I think, between all three of the leads. Oh, Yeah. When they're like the montages of them, like being buddies and friends, you just want to be there with them. They somehow capture that. They capture how um, they really do put you in Stingo's shoes. Yeah. They show you how fun and magnificent it is to be basking in Kevin Klein's light. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then how horrible it is when he decides to show you this favor as well. Yeah. That, and that's why, I mean, you have to have, you have to play both those colors, both those extremes so specifically in order for that character to be real. And, and to, in order to justify, I mean, Sophie, to a certain extent, really is a masochist to stay. Yeah. Right. Because, I mean, with everything that she has gone through to stay with this person who can make her feel so low and make her feel so empty and worthless and still feel like she needs to stay with him. Like she's obligated to stay with him. And the only way that works is if you see how like exciting it is to be around him Mm -hmm. other times, you know, yeah, it's, it's tough. And then Peter McNichol, who I don't, I should look up to see where he was in his filmography. Peter McNichol uh, could not give a more different performance than one of my favorite performance in a like fun performance movie. Him in Ghostbusters 2, as <laughs> just one of my very favorite performances ever. Uh, very different performance, but also quite brilliant. He's basically playing um, he's basically playing the actual author of this screenplay, the, uh, the author of this uh, book, uh, William Styron. Um, he, he, well, no, he didn't do the screenplay. Sorry, I guess he, he just wrote the novel, William Styron. But he basically said he is Stingo. Yeah. So this was, this was Peter McNichol's second movie after Dragon Slayer in 1981. So he was a newbie as well. 
And also the ages of the characters track with the ages of the actors. He was he's about five, six years younger than Kevin Klein and Meryl Streep. So he was he was in his mid to early to mid 20s when he made this film, which is Dingo's age for sure. Yeah. So they were all relatively early in their careers. I mean, Meryl was too. Yeah. This was in her first five years of making movies that she she did this. Kind of wild. Crazy. It's so <laughs> Oh, good. I mean, it really is absolutely brilliant performances from all three of them. Yeah. And they're just fantastic together. Uh, I want to mention that Alan J. I, I don't know if it's Pacula, Pacula. He's the director of this movie. He's uh, he's done a lot of wonderful films. Clute with Jane Fonda, All the President's Men with uh, Dustin Hoffman and Robert, uh, Robert Redford which is truly one of my favorite movies. Uh, Comes a Horseman, again, with Jane Fonda, uh, starting over with Jill Claiborne and Candace Bergen. Um, Sophie's Choice, obviously. Uh, and then Presumed Innocent in the 90s with Harrison Ford and The Pelican Brief. Wow. With Julia Roberts and, and Denzel. The Devil's Own, which we talked about at one point. Uh, that was the last movie he made, was The Devil's Own with uh, Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt. I just rewatched yeah. The Devil not that long ago. Yeah, what did you think? Oh, it, you can tell there was trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you it's can tell kind of was, a mess. Yeah, it's yeah. messy. It's messy. It's very watchable, but it's very messy, yeah. Totally. Um, I, I read some of the, I was curious about it, so I read some of the, the backstory of the casting process, and I, I, think, I think Harrison Ford's casting in it was a surprise. And then yeah. they make more of the role. And then that sort of watered down the script. And they just ended up with sort of a mess on their hands. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, yeah. I totally went off on a devil's own. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. I, you know, he makes sort of, I, I mean, he has a tendency to make political spoilers, right? Yeah. And here he is with Sophie's choice. And it's an interesting film. I mean, this movie was a hot commodity at the time, at least among actresses. And you can understand why that there were actresses really, you know, going after this role. Uh, one of the more well-known examples was, uh, at least if it's true, that Barbara Streisand, who was at the time, especially a very big star, offered to do this movie for free. Oh, wow. Like, they yeah, begged him for this role. And you know what? I mean, she maybe could have pulled it off. Maybe. I mean, I don't think like Meryl, but I, you know, she's not a bad actress. She's a little self well, Yeah, it, I would have been curious. There were, according to IMDb, and I don't know how true this is, there was, there were some other, I feel like there was a Polish actress attached to it. Yeah. And he wanted, I think, Liv Ullman, didn't he? Yeah. He wanted yeah. Liv Ullman. Originally, you know, the other one that was mentioned, yeah, there were a couple like Polish actresses. I even saw a German actress who I wasn't familiar with, but the other one that struck me as really uh, would have been a very different film was Natalie Wood. Oh, yeah, I saw that too. That would have been very weird. <laughs> and that, unfortunately, I think is right around the time that she died too. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, we don't need to dwell on that. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, there isn't a whole lot more specifically in this movie that happens. It's, you know, uh, Stingo moves into this house. He's trying to write his novel and he, he moves into this house where Sophie and Nathan are living uh, uh, a floor above and 
he kind of witnesses their very volatile relationship and maybe against his own better judgment becomes good friends with them and spends a lot of time with them and uh, proves to be a little bit, a lot more steady and uh, gener generous in a lot of ways to Sophie, a better friend certainly than Nathan is with her. And so she finally kind of reveals her, her deep, her deep secrets and everything that happened to her. Yeah. Any other scenes come to mind is particularly uh, poignant. I, I, the one that comes to mind for me is when she's with that young, she's in that young girl's room and she accuses her of trying to steal the radio and she tells her how smelly she is, but then they end up looking at pictures together. Like, again, just, you see, it's just such a great film to see how awful people can be. And yet there's, every once in a while just this tiny little bit of redemption and it's amazing when somebody's like when somebody's action that would under normal circumstances be cruel and like awful seems like a gift given the horror you know conditions otherwise if that makes sense yeah yeah I can think of a particular moment they really are all they all stand out. This is one of those films where I think I'd have a difficult time picking specific moments. Right. Um, a couple of things occurred to me. It was really interesting when she's when she's with Heck, and there are a couple of times when she's when she's with her Jewish lover, and they're asking her to help the resistance. She's refusing because she's just too scared for herself and for her children. And that theme sort of carries throughout that that even though she's opposed to what the Nazis are doing out of fear, she can't really ever bring herself to quite be brave enough. And that's one of her deep regrets. And it, rem it reminded me of the themes in the piano, Roman Plansky's piano, it's a really similar theme. And how, I can't even imagine, I think if you were a survivor, you might feel that way no matter what. Right. I don't know, it's pretty, it's pretty powerful and difficult for me to wrap my head around. So that was sort of a, a, a big thing that stuck out to me. On a much less grand level, I was super impressed with the wig game going on. <laughs> I was very, I, I really debated whether or not she would chop off her own hair. I did too. I did too, because they had these like amazing, for 1982, they had these really unbelievable close-ups of her head. And her scalp, way to go, makeup and hair department. I think the other thing that stood out to me was um, in the flashback when they are walking her down the length of one of the buildings at the concentration camp through the mud and she's having difficulty walking. It's such a wide shot. Mm -hmm. And they take her the length of the building and the chems behind her. And I really, oh, I thought, Damn, that as an actor, I can't imagine being in her position and essentially recreating Auschwitz on set. Yeah. Let alone, you know, what all of those poor people had to go through in reality. I can't, I can't imagine being on set for something like that. That kind of struck me. Right. Yeah. Is that the shot that you're talking about where then the camera pans up and when you see them walk through the. Yeah, they walk through this bleak gate on a cinder block wall and it pans up and you're in this lush garden where children are running and playing. It's Hess's, it's Hess's like courtyard. It's his protected living quarters. Oh, 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 it's 
vomitous. Yeah, but so effective, right? I mean, like, so effective. I mean, just brilliant. There are so many brilliant touches in this movie. You know, the funny thing was, I mean, I have thought from the first time I saw it, you know, this is a big statement. I know how big this statement is. If you ask me, I think this is, it has to be in contention for, if not the best performance that has ever been put on film. I, like, she's so masterful in this movie. She really is. I, I mean, her, her accent is flawless. I, I, feel, I feel uncomfortable even calling it an accent because that's not what she did. Like, right. <laughs> she embodies it. Yep. And it's more than the scene. Like, she is yeah. so astoundingly good in this movie in a way that is, I, I just imagine, you know, it, I mean, I was born in 1982. And so it, had I been around to see this movie when it came out, again, yeah, she had won a, she had won a supporting actress Oscar. She had done French Lieutenant's Woman. And, uh, you know, I would have seen her in a couple things before then. But, you know, just imagine seeing this performance and and seeing this explosion of who is this person and again i mean we talked about this a little bit when we did the silkwood episode but i think there were five days something like that in between the filming of this movie and the filming of silkwood holy shit wow you know bonkers that is insane and i don't know this it's just this is so astonishing what she did in this movie, what all of them did in this movie. And it, it was funny because I had it in my head and I don't know why. I think I read a couple of reviews that maybe made me feel like I was gonna feel like her performance was amazing, but the movie itself was only okay. The movie is really good. It's so good. It, it's, so, uh, it's really good, guys. <laughs> yeah. It's not a fun watch. Although it's, again, as you said, it's with the exception of the the a few scenes it's also in a weird way not as bad as as it's kind of built up sometimes in our heads i mean if you had to choose between this or ironweed which would you go with if you had to watch one of these movies again let's say a month from now oh sophie's story hands down <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 no 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 question iron ironweed is so fucking <laughs> You could say that for House of the Spirits or The Homesman, or you know, I could. That that movie though, that takes that takes bleakness to a whole new level. I yeah, no, I would pick Sophie's Choice any day. Yeah, so this is not a movie that I think people should be scared of. I think people should treat it responsibly, of course. But you know, it's just a masterpiece. There's no other word for it. But I mean, it it is. I really think. I can't think of a performance that I would put up there even in the same category. This is the greatest film performance I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I gotta agree. I have to agree. It's really, really good. And you know what? It's funny because the film is not, you're right. The film is not challenging to watch, really. I mean, it, it, it is, it's dark, but it's, you're there with it. It's really the last five minutes, 10 yeah. minutes of the film. And it's sort of a testament to those moments that people think of this film and go, oh. Right. <laughs> right, because yeah. it's so powerful. And Meryl, I think, felt, I mean, I mean, she, li she lived this, of course, through, through the making of this film. But uh, there was another thing. I haven't watched this particular interview, but I guess she did an interview with Oprah at some point in which, you know, coming out of a commercial break, they showed that scene because nothing says happy four o'clock daytime talk show like showing that scene randomly. 
<laughs> I don't know what they were thinking, but um, showed that scene and they said Meryl was visibly uncomfortable and talked about how she did not watch that. She had not watched that and had like intentionally stayed away from it. I'm sure by now she's seen it. It's hard to avoid it. Uh, but, you know, it would be hard in some ways to, to be so affiliated with this scene and this performance, too, because I don't know. I would imagine she's it's it, it, she still is back there in a way whenever that happens and takes a little yeah. piece. Of I wouldn't want to watch it. No, I don't blame her. Not for a second. Yeah. Well, this movie was uh, made on a budget of about nine million and made about 30 million. So it was definitely a success. It was a pretty strong commercial or yeah commercial success but also uh it was critical success too it was for the most part given positive reviews uh we talked about roger ebert last time or or recently anyway you were talking about one of the film reviews i, I think it was ironweed actually where you were talking about his review and he was mean to somebody i carol baker i think he was mean to her wasn't oh he? yeah um, yeah, totally <laughs> but uh, he gave this a four out of four and was, you know, gave it a lot of praise. Siskel gave it three and a half out of four. There were a few reviews that, you know, said basically nobody criticized her. There was one that said the, the chemistry between the three was not very good. And there was another one who said that Meryl and Klein were great, but Peter McNichol almost ruined the movie, which I totally agree with. Yeah. I totally disagree. He's magnificent. He's so good. He's fantastic in this movie. Kevin Klein's fantastic. I mean, they're all three of them. I think that's the thing is this is a movie that hinged so much on, on these three performances that any one of them could have ruined this movie pretty easily. But I don't think any of them even approaches that. And actually, I think Kevin Klein's role is the one that probably could have done it the easiest because it was it, it's so easy for that to be over the top or take it too far in one direction or another, but he's just, uh, again, his second movie and the first one was Pirates of Pennsylvania. It's unbelievable. He's really brilliant. I love him in this so much. I'm a huge fan of his anyway, um, but oh, he's so good in it. He's so good. Um, so he this movie, part. yeah. That's seen a lot. Like when I watch, when I watch movies where men are abusive to women, my first instinct is not to be like, oh, my heart breaks for you, buddy, <laughs> right? But that's what he does. That's what he's able to elicit. You're just like, oh, this man, he's so tortured. Yeah, yeah. It was, it's heartbreaking on the, the documentary too, because they talked to a couple of, a couple of survivors from Auschwitz and, you know, hearing them, hearing anybody talk about that time is of course heartbreaking, but what one of them said was, you know, the end of the movie, again, spoiler alert here, but uh, they, they take cyanide pills and uh, they commit suicide, the two of them together. And she, the, the actual real life survivor said, of course she did that. She had to do that. And like, you know, I mean, that is so much a part of, of survivors stories is guilt and what a what a crazy unbelievable thing again it goes beyond description but um meryl of course won her best her first best actress she had one best supporting actress but she won her second oscar in three years for this movie i think she was considered the shoe in as much as these things can be but listen to this year listen to this category so meryl obviously won she was up against julie andrews for victor victoria 
Jessica Lange for Francis, which is a great Jessica Lange performance. That's the one that she thinks is the best she ever did. She's great in that movie. Sissy Spacek for Missing, another really good movie, a really good performance. And Deborah Winger for An Officer and a Gentleman. I don't think I've ever seen that one. But, I mean, come on. That is a stacked category. And Jessica Lange was nominated for Tootsie as well in the Supporting Actress category, right? And she won. Yeah. 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 And um, yeah, the, she Jessica Lange that year, it was the first time in 40 years that somebody had been nominated in the lead and supporting category. And it was funny because like her role in Tootsie, I just watched Tootsie the other day because of the Jessica Lange thing we're going to be doing. That isn't really a supporting performance. She's really the female lead of that movie. Totally. So that's kind of why. Um, but, you know, I think there was, that was the reward was, yeah, Meryl's going to win in the lead, but we're going to give you the supporting here. So, but uh, yeah, she's really good in Francis as well. Yeah. Like you say, I guess I hadn't really put much thought somehow into the idea that neither one of Kevin Klein or Peter McNichol were nominated. They both should have been nominated. They should have been, and I was really surprised. And I, you know, I went and I looked at the category, and I mean, it was a pretty full year. Yeah. I, that was the year that Ben Kingsley won for Gandhi, and I can't remember who else was nominated, but it was pretty hefty. I, I got it in front of me. Yeah. It, it's Dustin for, for Tootsie, Jack Lemon for Missing, which again, he's really good. That's a good movie. Uh, Paul Newman in The Verdict and Peter O'Toole in My Favorite Year. Peter O'Toole, I think, is probably, I mean, he's an incredible actor. That probably is where it would have come in. Yeah. Um, I could see, I'm I'm actually more surprised when I look at the supporting actor category. Louis Gossett Jr. won for Officer and a Gentleman, and I think he was the first African-American to ever win that award. Uh, Charles Durning was up for the best little whorehouse in Texas. That's maybe one that could have been bumped for Peter McNichol. <laughs> John Lithgow for The World According to Garth, which is a great performance, but it's a very tiny performance in that movie. He's not in very much of that movie. Uh, James Mason in The Verdict, which I don't remember very well. I have seen it, but I don't remember it that well. And Robert Preston in Victor Victoria, which again, I haven't seen in too long, so I don't, I don't remember. But Totally warranted. Uh, He's lovely in that. It's a really great, great performance. I just wish Peter had gotten in there. Yeah, I wish they both had. Uh, the other categories that it was nominated on was Best Screenplay, uh, uh, material from another medium, which it lost to Missing, the movie that I've been saying is good for a few times. It was also nominated in Best Original Score, which it lost to E.T. Of course, you're going to lose to E.T. That makes sense. Uh, it, is, it is a good soundtrack, but uh, let's see, I'm looking through the other ones. I think it was Costume Design. Yeah, it lost Costume Design to Gandhi and Cinematography to Gandhi. I understand the cinematography more than costume design in Gandhi, I have to say. Yeah, maybe it was just sheer size and scope took that yeah. one. I'm thinking. Yeah. One of the other things that I thought was interesting about this movie, I'm curious if you knew that Sophie's Choice and it's on its 20 year anniversary in 2002 was turned into an opera. Did you know that? No. It makes total <laughs> sense. I mean, it's very operatic. Yeah. That's crazy. Where? An American opera? Is it a... I think it was in the UK, but let me look real quick. I know it was not perceived, it was not received particularly well. This sounds vaguely familiar to me. Yeah, it premiered on December 7th uh, in, in, in 2002 at the Royal Opera House in London. 
it had taken a while for them to write it, I guess. And they were, they were concerned because there was some of the, some of the stage machinery had not been working particularly well during rehearsals. Uh, but I guess the actual run of the show was fine. There were no issues, but the critical response, there's a, there's a quote here from the guardian, which is a very big newspaper in London. Um, and it quoted that the program notes that life is quote, life is messy, like masturbation, which what, ex what does that mean when we're talking about Sophie's choice? Nothing, that's not even relevant. Exactly. That's a very strange thing for the program to say. And it talks about how it was overly long. It was four hours and kind of being kind of messy. It kind of sounds like the film. They praised the individual performances, but said that there was a lot of things about Auschwitz that kind of felt maybe not right on stage. How long did it run? Not very long. Um, I don't have an end date. It, it was eventually cut down to a three hour version when it premiered here in America, but it didn't premiere here until 2006. So four years later, okay. it ran at the Washington National Opera. It's, it's been shown in Berlin uh, and a couple other places. There is a DVD available of it, the BBC Live broadcast version in 2010. So I guess it's been done a few times and there is a way for us to see it. I'm probably gonna wait a while before checking that one out. Yeah, for sure. I, I probably will never check that out to be honest. <laughs> I'm gonna let the opera go. It did make sense to me. Like as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh yeah, of course this works as an opera. I mean, like this is a very operatic movie. Yeah, totally. Well, anything else you want to say about this movie? No, I don't think so. If you, if you think you can tough it out, I highly recommend it. It really is an extreme thing. Yeah. 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 Let's see. I'm going to read a bad review Yeah. Uh, to lighten this up. There's only two. There's no one-star reviews. There's two two-star reviews. Okay. Uh, and they're both really confusing. Uh one of them, okay, I'm just going to read this one. I, I don't know. Neither of them are particularly interesting, but uh, the one that I'm going to read, it says, uh, skip ahead to the last 15 moments, I guess it was minutes, of the movie to see Sophie's Choice. This was written in 2020. Actually, just a couple weeks ago. It was written in late October of this year. Uh, it says, most of this movie has nothing to do with Sophie's Choice, the fallout or events leading up to it. The parts of the movie involving Sophie's occupy about five minutes of the movie so if you're only interested in that aspect skip to the last 20 minutes of the movie and watch it you won't miss any plot details leading to the choice then go back to the movie and start from the beginning the movie has no point whatsoever Meryl Streep clearly did not research her role very well and basically read the lines in the script the other characters were adequate I've some real problems with that one. Um, yeah, it's like, why don't you get up and try and do that, buddy? <laughs> I mean, there's been an influx of Meryl haters after, you know, the Golden Globe speech. I assume maybe that's part of that. Uh, you know, I don't know. That's that's bonkers to me. The idea that you wouldn't need any context for for the last couple of minutes of the movie is, I mean, I guess not entirely wrong but that's a very strange suggestion to make to somebody especially to say go watch the last five minutes and then go back to the beginning and watch the whole thing again listeners of this show don't do that that's no. a <laughs> no i mean listen you are the whole point of this film is that you are losing your innocence with tingo right you 
from meeting these two larger than life, beautiful, perfect people. And the more you find out about them, the more you realize how much they've suffered and how imperfect they are. That's yeah. the point. You can't watch the last scene without the rest of the movie. <laughs> right. And, you know, the idea that she did not research her role is almost not even worth going after. But I mean, she learned to speak. Not only did she master an accent, and I think, I think that has been universally praised, but she learned how to speak the language fluently. It's bonkers to say. Insane. So we won't even go there. This person does not know what they're talking about. Usually I find these funny. I don't find that funny. Um, <laughs> so let's see. I was going to ask you something else though. Yeah, rankings. Thank you. Where does this fit for you? Oh, performances. I'm number one. Yep. Number Me one. Too. Hands down. So I've got the post second, Julia and Julia third, a cry in the dark fourth, fourth and a Devil Wars Prada five. Nice. That's yeah. a good five. Yeah, yeah. Um, movie wise, oh, I don't know yet. Keep giving me. I keep saying that every time we read them. Like, just give me an episode or two, folks, and I'll tell you where things fall. I'm well, not sure. I've got to think about it. You are more thoughtful about that, I have to say, and I think ultimately that serves you better because I'm looking. I as you were reading yours, I I listened to what you were saying, and I think your top five is better than my top five because mine is Sophie's Choice, Silkwood, Postcards from the Edge, which as much as I love it is probably a real high. The Post, and then Big Little Lies season two, which again I did love that, but that's like Julia and Julia's six. There are some, you know, A Cry in the Dark should be there. I have that at ten. I think you're you're more thoughtful about where actually you're placing them, and it probably makes for a better overall list. I need to maybe do a little bit of adjustment to mine. Uh, before postcards of the edge is number six for me. Yeah, I think we probably if yeah. if we took our top tens, we probably have roughly the same movies in there. Yeah. Um, uh, for a film, I put this number seven, by the way, in between adaptation and out of Africa. Um, I still see, have the hours at number one. I have a two. I have the post number one. What do you have? You have the hours one. I have the hours one. Little Women number two. Uh, Postcards from the Edge number three. Crazy. <laughs> like yeah. looking at my movie list, and I'm like, what am I thinking? But no. uh, Kramer, Kramer is four. Oh, see, okay. I'm glad to hear you say that because I have Kramer and Kramer five, and I was just thinking this should be above Kramer. Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, I'm going to put this in. I mean, it's crazy because it's, I will never watch it again, but it's definitely, it's definitely in my top 10. I'm not sure I can decide where. Sure. But listen, Speak I have Florence Foster Jenkins at number eight. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I definitely, like my best performance list and my best film list are in two very different places. Which that is, I think the new, that and the laundromat are the ones that we have the most disparity. Florence Foster Jenkins is number 27 for me. It is very low. I think now I would mark it lower. I think maybe it tugged at my heartstrings in a way and it's just stayed put as I've ranked the others. Yeah. We're going to need to look at our, when this is all said and done, Zach and I talked about this. Maybe we've talked about it on, um, on record, but we're going to revisit the films that have the most disparity on our list. Yeah. And see if we re-rank them. Without, without actually having run the numbers on it, my guess is The Laundromat and Florence Foster Jenkins are probably those two movies because yeah. I have I have The Laundromat very high, you have it quite low, and yeah. vice versa, Florence Foster Jenkins. 
I think we've mostly agreed on other ones, but it's just kind of interesting that it's those two movies, which, you know, like if you took a, even a strong Meryl fan and five minutes, name as many Meryl movies as you can. I bet maybe Florence Foster Jenkins would be on some people's list. I don't think anybody would mention the laundromat. (laughs) And I don't think it would be necessarily likely that people would mention Florence Foster Jenkins either. I mean, it's a good film, but it's not, you know, one of the ones that she's best known for. So anyway, Uh, do you, speaking of though, do you have any placements for any of these other 80s ones that we've done that we haven't placed? Um, So I just sort of on a whim put Sophie's Choice as number four. And then I was just, I ranked Falling in Love performance. Where did I put that? Guys, the lists are getting so long. I can no longer just cite, spot this stuff. Um, I have Falling in Love, even though I love the performance, I had it at 18 under between Silkwood and Music of the Heart. That's still higher than I. Mine is at 27. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the movie is fly, but I really love her performances. Um, and then film wise, I would probably put Falling in Love at 25 between Death Becomes Her and Music of the Heart. Okay. Yeah. And then I think I ranked Plenty when we were, yeah, I ranked Plenty pretty low, even though I enjoyed the film and see all the qualities Aaron sees in it. It ended up being at 35 for me film wise. And then performance wise, it's at 31. I'm I'm with you on those. I think it just I think it does it it does like like Aaron said it definitely travels into camp unintentionally. So well, I'm glad we have this down. Okay, we've got our we've got our 50th episode here, and uh, we've <laughs> completed Merrill's 1980s run. That's a big yeah. deal. Ranked French Lieutenant's Woman. I think that's mm. the one missing one. And what about Ironweed? Did you rank that? Oh, I haven't ranked that either. But listen, guys, <laughs> Ironweed will not be high. <laughs> it will not be high on the list for me i'll tell you that and i will not repeat the b word <laughs> <laughs> all right well let's go on to our other segments let's do <laughs> the movies we wish meryl was in or six degrees uh let's do the movies we wish meryl was in okay did you think of one no <laughs> Um, on a whim, I, you know, the new Wonder Woman is coming out. I saw that. And, um, Annette Bening is in it. Yeah. 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 Um, and I love Annette. Again, I say this every time. I never want to replace anybody in these movies with Meryl Streep, but I would love to see Meryl Streep in a role like that. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm kind of surprised it hasn't happened yet, especially Wonder Woman, because I think that's the one that she might actually do. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm going to repeat one actually, because as we were, as I was editing one of our episodes, my portion got uh, chopped off for some reason. So uh, you had, you had just talked about, uh, I can't remember to, to lead us in. I'm not sure what the connective tissue was, but we started talking about, I had recently seen the movie house sitter, which I thought I had seen Steve Martin and Goldie Hawn. I thought for years I had seen that movie, but I don't think I had ever seen that movie. And it's maybe not a great movie. I mean, it's fun, but it's not, you know, I think we would have had it kind of in the middle to middle bottom, you know, if it were actually Meryl's filmography, not one that is a huge miss for Meryl, but uh, I, it would have been an interesting role. And we talked what we did, it's complicated about the great chemistry that she had with Steve Martin in that movie. 
it would have been fun to see them do something else too. It's one of those movies we talked about Deceived with Aaron, another yeah. Golden movie. And uh, we talked about how that one is maybe the most un-Goldie Hawn-like performance, but she actually tones it down in House Sitter quite a bit too. You know, she's kooky, but yeah. she's not at the top. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I remember that. I remember laughing out loud when I saw House Sitter. I think yeah. I saw it when it came out. I Like I said, I mean, those movies, the two of them did, I know they did Out of Towners too uh -huh. in the late 90s. I feel like they maybe did one other movie, but I could be wrong. I, I feel like I saw one and assumed it was the other one is what I'm trying to say. But, um, and then our six degrees person was Rafe Fines. Yeah. Were able to connect him? Off the top of my head, he was in The English Patient with Colin Firth. And Colin Firth is in Mary Poppins, isn't he? Uh, I think he is. Okay. He's definitely, he's definitely okay. Mamma Mia. Yeah, oh yeah, and Mamma Mia. I don't remember Colin Firth being in The English Patient. He was really in the English patient? He's Kristen Scott oh, Thomas' right. husband. You're right. Yeah. I totally forgot he was in that movie. Yeah. Wow. Okay. The uh, He actually has quite a few connections I could think of. I think I'm too tired to come up with a bunch. The one that came to mind because I had actually watched it fairly recently was uh, Red Dragon, which was the prequel to Silence of the Lambs. He did that with uh, with Anthony Hopkins, who I wish had made a movie. Had, I still wish they would make a movie together. I think they'd be really good together. But um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is in that movie and uh, they have the connection through doubt. The thing that I thought was interesting about Red Dragon as I was looking was Anthony Hopkins showed up to sets on days he wasn't called just to watch Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like that's such a great testament from somebody like Anthony Hopkins, you know, to have him show up just because he wanted to watch it work. That's amazing. That movie is legitimately good and terrifying. Yeah, there are there are a number of other you know connections too. He did. He was in the Ray Fiennes was in that. Um, I think it was called Holmes and Watson. That like Sherlock Holmes thing that John C. Riley was in with Will Ferrell. Oh yeah, John C. Riley companion with Meryl uh there's there's other there's other connections too we could I'm sure there's many connections just through the Harry Potter movies actually oh yeah I didn't even think about that crazy I'm sure we could go on for a long time uh Nanny McPhee he was in one of those uh movies yeah. with Emma Thompson so anyway okay. he was in the he was in the sequel to Nanny McPhee oh those were cute movies too yeah so um uh, our next six degrees person is Izzy Cap is he is he Lizzie Lizzie yeah, Lizzie. Oh, I failed. That was such an anticlimactic announcement. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> All right, Lizzie Kaplan. Um, that one will be difficult, I think. I but think fun. Too. Yeah. It's in a very different circle. Yeah. That'll be fun, though. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, this was a fun one. Thank you, Meryl. I'm glad we did this. Yeah, me too. And yeah. we're finished with the 80s. Do a little dance. The 80s. So thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll see you in a couple weeks for uh, some new Meryl movies and we can't wait to see them. Bye everybody. Take care. That's all.